Last week we uh, began our Christmas series looking behind the scenes at what God has done in bringing Jesus Christ into the world, in bringing Himself into the world, in the Son of God incarnate among men. And what an amazing reality this is. We, we celebrate Christmas, and I think we're all on the same page that we understand the reason for the season, everything that's behind it. But I wonder if we've really spent time contemplating and trying to understand what it means that God became flesh to dwell among men. We know that it was necessary. It was necessary that God would come and dwell in the flesh, that he would become the substitutionary punishment for all of humanity, all those who would believe in him. How marvelous is it that God dwelt in the flesh? I began last week by asking if you've ever considered what was happening behind the scenes, if the curtain was pulled back, if you could see the divine, I don't want to call it a play, but the divine mechanisms at work as Christ was born. As the little Lord Jesus dwelt in a manger, as he was being swaddled beneath stars that he created in a field that he formed. This week we'll continue with that same thought, looking at the work of Christ through this world, the behind the scene mechanisms and why it's necessary. We were looking last week in the prologue of the Gospel of John, that is how John introduces himself and opens up the Gospel. We left off in verse 3, and I want to pick up this morning right in verse 4. If you have your Bibles, I'll ask that you'll turn there and be ready to read along with me after we take a moment to pray and ask that God would give us understanding of the text this morning. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning eager to hear your word, excited to hear what you have for us to hear. God, I pray that our hearts would be receptive to the truth that you've given us, that you would guide us in understanding this morning, that as we read your word, that our hearts, our minds would be conformed. God, I pray that as we gather together this morning, your church, that you would be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The Bible says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Last week we talked about Jesus' eternal nature, how he existed before he dwelt in the flesh, how he is eternal as part of the divine Godhead. This week, we find a little bit out about him. Who is this Jesus? Who is this word that is coming to dwell among men? Our text begins, in him was life. Now, life is a tremendous theme in the Gospel of John. If you spend time reading John's works, you'll find that he mentions life 36 times in his Gospel account alone. Over and over, go, 
Over and over again, we are pointed to Christ as the source for all life, for all life. By his Holy Spirit, he gives us the breath of life. This brings back the imagery that should be um, conjured up in our minds all the way from the Genesis story, from the creation story, when we find that God created man and woman in his own image. Chapter 2 of Genesis gives us even more insight as we read in verse 7 that God formed man from the dust of the earth and breathed into him the breath of life. All of creation was created unique to its own kind, the way that God had designed it. But humanity is distinct from creation. You and I are different than all of God's creative works because he creates humanity in his own image. He breathes life into us. He makes man a living creature. It is by his Holy Spirit that he gives us the breath of life. John references this in chapter 3, verse 8, in chapter 20, verse 22. He points to Christ as the water of life. John 4, verse 10, verses 13 and 14 in the same chapter, and then chapter 7, verse 37 and 39. Christ is the water of life. You'll remember from John chapter 4, that's the scene where we find Christ interacting with the Samaritan woman out by the well as he passes through Samaria on his way to Galilee. You thirst. I offer you water that will never make you parched again. Life, substance, vitality, everything that we need. John points again to Christ as the bread of life that came down from heaven. The very provision, the very providence that gave Israel everything that they needed in the wilderness. Christ is the bread of life that provides the very providence, the very sustenance, the very nourishment that we need today. Jesus is literally the life. In his own words, he recounts in John 14, verse 6, and many of you, I think, could quote this for yourselves. I am the truth, the life. None comes to the Father but through me. This insight into who Christ is already beginning in John's gospel, he sets the tone for everything that he would tell us. And we made the point last week that John does not give us a perfect bibliographic insight into Christ's life. He's writing with a purpose that all those who would read John's gospel would come to a place in believing in him because John, even setting the pace in his prologue, tells us that Christ is the life that all of humanity needs. This is why this is crucial. People in this world today are walking around dead. Christians in the church today are walking around spiritually asleep. There is no life. There is no vitality. There is no nourishment for our spiritual growth, for the mission of God, for the kingdom of God, outside of a unique, personal, individual relationship with the one who offers life. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is the second major theme in most Johnian writings, light. What is light? The life that Christ offers us is the light that exists inside of men. Some of you, uh, like me, are probably familiar with what has 
become known as um, seasonal depression. There's a this time of year as the earth pulls farther away from the sun and vitamin D is lower in substance and people are staying indoors more often. We see this in schools, we see this in workplaces, and we see this even in people that aren't working. People get depressed in the winter. The biggest consequence of seasonal depression, it's not life crippling, but it's, it can leave you fatigued, it can leave you a bit lethargic, it can leave you um, a little unclear. Brain fog. The greatest consequence of it is you see the light go out of people. Everything in life that was worth living, that made life worth living, seems to escape them as they forget everything that is around them. As we look at Christ, I'm reminded that such a an obstacle, such an issue that could pervade the hearts and minds of men and church members and people in our community isn't an issue of being away from the sun. It isn't an issue of anything that the world causes. But the greater issue beyond this, what gives us light, what gives us this thing that we are pursuing is life and substance that comes from Christ and Christ alone. When we look at humanity, what makes us unique that we're created in God's image, that demands that this relationship with God is fed, that it's nourished. I believe that the image of God that makes humanity distinct from the rest of creation exists in this one component, that we are existed to be relational beings. This is emphasized in the creation story. God creates man, even as we're being told that God creates us in His image. The context in Genesis chapter 1 points towards dominion that God gives humanity over creation. Humanity is to have a, a relationship with the world. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the first time that God ever says something's not good, he goes all the way through Genesis chapter 1, it is good, it is good, it is good, and we get to Genesis chapter 2, before the fall, before sin enters the world, it is not good that man should be alone. Humanity exists, is, is created to have a relationship with one another. And finally, Consequence of the sin, the consequence of fall, the consequence of a deprived nature that comes from the fall of creation in Genesis chapter 3. Humanity is created to have a relationship with God. We're created to have a relationship with God. It does not puzzle me. It does not bewilder me. I'm not confused whenever I see suffering in this world with people that refuse to acknowledge the creator that has formed them, that has made them, that has provided for them, that is the life of the world. It does not surprise me that people are lacking light. Light. This essential substance by which the plants go through a process of photosynthesis and produce energy that's consumed all the way down the food chain that we eat it. It is the very substance of life in our world. But what is light? I told you all I'm, I'm really not very smart. And I defer to those who are smarter than me, those who looked at physics and can contemplate these things that are very difficult I tried to understand it as I was preparing for the sermon. You know what I found out? 
Even physicists don't really understand what light is. I just wanted a simple definition of what light is that I could use in my sermon. To, and the illustration's even better because there's not really a definition. It's a mystery. It's energy. It's luminous. But what is it? We can measure it. Things can get brighter. They can get darker. Turns out darkness doesn't actually exist. It's simply the absence of light. But what is light? Well, there are waves of energy that whenever they come into contact with the retina behind your eye, they create a visual substance in your brain. But what's the light? You're telling me that it's just little particles moving really fast, punching the back of my eyeball? That's what they're saying. In fact, a study of light is considered, it's not even normal physics. What's the word for the type of physics that we really don't understand, that goes beyond us, that the really smart people can begin to wrap their heads around? Oh, no, no. Dark matter fits into this category. I'm looking for the category. It's in my notes somewhere. Oh, it doesn't matter. It's hypothetical. It's perspective. Quantum. Yeah, it's quantum physics. You cannot study light in normal physics. You have to study quantum physics to even get a definition of light. And so maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I misunderstood what I was reading. Maybe there is a definition, and maybe my small human brain just didn't comprehend it. But I think it makes even more sense that this light substance is bigger than even what we can put into words. What is light? It is the substance of life that God provides to this world. And it says nothing else but the substance of life. It says He, in Him, was the life and there was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The text goes on in verse 5. The life that Christ is giving to us demands an understanding I want to take you on a little field trip real fast to the book of Romans. If you would, go to Romans chapter 1. I want to read verses 19 through 25. Here, Paul writes what I think John is expressing in his unique, simple language. Romans chapter 1, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. All of the world stands condemned because God has revealed himself to all of humanity in natural creation. Romans goes on. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. We read that text and I think so easily we think, look at the folly of everyone who is not a Christian. 
Look at the folly and the foolishness that exists and pervades the world in people who would not acknowledge God who has revealed himself to all of humanity. Loved ones, I warn you against reading your Bible this way. This is not a description of them. This is a description of us. This is not the third person plural. This is the first person plural. Us. When we read, they exchange the glory of the immortal God. It is us that exchange the glory of the immortal God that we might under that we might worship things that resemble mortal man and birds and animals of creeping things. It is by God's deliverance. And I want to get to this. The text goes on. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God delivered humanity into the lust of their minds, into impurity, into these things that would dishonor their bodies. He delivers them to this because they volitionally decided to not worship the creator. Therefore, if it takes God to deliver us into such acts, it also takes God to deliver us from it. The only reason we don't read that middle section and we can say they instead of us is because we also must acknowledge that it is God that delivered us from that. That he pulled us from being delivered into the lust of our hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of our bodies. That we were given insight into everything that we need. I have, as I've... um, been preaching here for two years, I've been thinking about, is there a theme in my preaching? Is there a subject that maybe I'm hitting on too often that needs a little bit more variance? Am I hitting the preaching, the full counsel of God? And I looked through some of my old sermon notes and I found the theme for the past two years. It's been the doctrine of revelation. It's been the fact that God is declaring himself among all the nations through creation, through special Works through the special revelation and the divine gift of Scripture. I want to shift gears as we come to the end of this year. Revelation without illumination does not help us. Because what I know about humanity is not only are we able to deceive those around us, we are able to deceive ourselves. We're able to trick ourselves into a lie, into thinking that good Christian men rejoice, that's me. We're able to deceive ourselves into a lie in saying that I love God with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, all the while worshiping idols alongside of us and casting our lives aside because we would rather worship that which pleases us and place God on the back burner. If you don't believe me, spend any time reading what the Bible says about human nature. This is the great deceit. The great consequence of sin is that we do not see sinfulness in our own lives unless it has been revealed to us. God created us to have a relationship with Him. That relationship is damaged. We are separated and alienated from God as a consequence of sin. God creates us to have a relationship with one another. We damage that by the same means through lying, through deception. He creates us to have a relationship with the world around us. 
And instead, we exploit the world around us. We look at it as resources instead of something that God's given us to be stewards of. What does it really mean to worship God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul? It's to understand not only that He's given us this revelation, but to earnestly pursue Him in asking Him to help us to understand it. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Another translation, the word used here for overcome, could also be understand. Sure, I think John's writing something here that's very clear. Darkness cannot overcome light. In fact, darkness doesn't exist. It's just the absence of light. Darkness cannot overcome light. But I think more pressing here is that darkness must, cannot understand light. When we live our lives in darkness, when we live our lives committed to living the same way that we always have, when we have no vitality, when we have no zeal, when there's no life in our worship, when we aren't earnestly reading God's will and asking Him to show us what it means, we are pursuing revelation by our own human intellect. This is folly. This is the foolishness of man. And God delivers humanity into this, and He will. Because He promises us, this is what the incarnation means. This is what Christ coming to the world means. Deliver us from that. Christ is the light. He is the illumination. In fact, in terms of revelation, He's the ultimate revelation of who God is because He shows us who He is. He dwells among us. Christ is the ultimate revelation of work, even outside of the Bible. While the Bible is the ultimate authority for faith and life because it's what we have, Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of God to humanity. His presence among us. Illumination is needed. Revelation is the padlock, but illumination is the key. Darkness has not overcome it, and I mentioned can also be translated understood it. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Is it the author? No. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. An interesting thing about the ministry of God as he comes to dwell on the earth is not only that God became incarnate among men dwelling in the flesh. But God fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament Scripture in providing a forerunner before Him. Someone to prepare the hearts and the minds of the people. Someone to run out before Him and to declare to a nation of Israel, like that of the church, who had fallen asleep, who wasn't paying attention, who wasn't listening to God's Word, who worshipped as a matter of lip service, who went through the ritual and the tradition without their heart being conformed and broken for the sins of the world, that they would come to a loving and restorative and reconciled relationship with God. God sent John, who would declare in the wilderness, what does he do? He bears witness. He bears witness. He declares that the true light of the world is coming, that true understanding is coming, if we will understand him, that all might believe through him.
John's ministry is ordained by none other than God. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. As a joke, since we're about halfway through this morning, I'd like to point out that while the Lutherans have Martin Luther, the Methodists have John Wesley, Baptists have John the Baptist. That's a joke. John came to give a witness. This is why we can believe. John continues to echo through his writings, not John the Baptist, but John the writer, and the entire gospel account, all of the witnesses that would come to make a profession to say that Christ is God, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, all of the various words that he gives us in declaring who he is and his nature. Behold the Lamb of God, John would declare. John is the one that comes into this world to make this witness, and this is why today you can believe him. That God sent the last of the Old Testament prophets to declare this among the people, that the people might believe. Because the people of Israel, in John's time, in the days leading up to God's indwelling the flesh among men, they had become complacent. We know that they had become complacent because God has preserved throughout history for over 2,000 years His recorded Word. The Old Testament gives us insights into everything that the nation of Israel had been through from their time in captivity to the deliverance through the Persian Empire all the way to the rebuilding of this and the dwelling of the city. And then we find the major prophets and the minor prophets all calling out among the people, repent, come back to God, ending in Malachi. And Malachi would give us this picture. You have forsaken everything from me. He tells us that their heart was not in worship. Their heart was not in the task that they had before them. Their heart was not... In honoring and glorifying God, it was in preserving a tradition that they had no, spent zero time understanding the meaning. When I think about the church in modern times, I see the same thing. I'm not talking specifically about our church. As I visit with brothers and sisters who are in sister churches, being a part of a church is losing its meaning. Honoring and glorifying God with our lives is becoming a secondary issue. We've left the saucepan on the burner for too long and all that remains is the tasks and traditions that make us happy. We've reduced spiritual worship so much that the life has gone out of it. As I spend time, and some of you know this about me, I'm a nerd, reading about the great missions movements throughout history and looking at the Moravians and looking at uh, the work of William Carey and the work that began at the beginning of the 19th century and the great work that was done that led to the planting of 
thousands and thousands of churches all over the world, congregations that worshiped God. And I look around at the mission field that the people were writing to, and I look at their use of statistics and, and reaching out to the churches that were established and saying, don't you want to be a part of this? Don't you want to support this? Don't you? And people jumped on it. They wanted to be a part of it. I see the wheels turning, even in our own association of churches. How can we be a part of this? And I'm not trying to be hypercritical. I'm trying to be honest about what I observe. The mission field is here now. The mission field is among us now. Because Satan, the enemy, has infiltrated churches time and time again. And churches are asleep. Their prayer is mechanical. Their worship lacks vibrance. They do all the right things, but there's no joy in it. We listen to preachers preach. And I love, I absolutely love with all of my heart what modernization has done in this world that I can listen to great preachers anytime I want. And we have reduced the Sunday morning gathering of the church to hear the proclamation of the world to simply being taught. Loved ones, if you are here this morning and you think the only thing you're supposed to do is listen to me, you're missing the point. I'm not a great preacher. I'm faithful to God. I'm obedient to His Word. But I'm not a great preacher. You are supposed to be participants as the Word of God is declared. You're supposed to be engaging with the Bible, not only as I read it, but as you read it on your own. The life was in Him. The life was the light of men. If you have no joy in reading your Bible, you are missing the point. If there is no joy in you as we stand together as a church to sing songs to God's glory and to His praise, you are missing the point. And we wonder, why is the missionary work of the church not succeeding in our communities around us? It is for this very reason. Where is the light of the church? Do we genuinely pursue the illumination of God's Spirit in guiding us into all understanding of all things that are found in Scripture? Are we obedient in these things? Or have we relegated, have we reduced spiritual worship to simply doing what we've always done? As I look at the ministry of John the Baptist, I'm reminded that this was not unique to God's first coming, but that he promises us in the book of Malachi a second forerunner who would come, namely the prophet Elijah who dwells with God now. The church needs Elijah to come and preach to them. The church needs Elijah to call them out of the wilderness. The church needs someone radical like John who would go into the wilderness and live a life committed to God, who would call people to worshiping Him in more than task service, who would say, repent, because the moment of truth is coming when the light, the true light, will come into this world. Because that moment will come again. The Bible tells us that it's imminently coming, that Christ's return is coming sooner than you think, that right now we're closer to it than we were when the sermon began, that right now we are supposed to be ready, that our spiritual worship is supposed to be constant, ready to be wrapped up in the clouds, ready to dwell with Christ, ready to reign with Christ, 
ready to worship and honor and glorify Him in all that we do. The true light, which gives light to everyone. I want you to look in verse 9. Everyone, this is indiscriminate. Everyone is blessed by the true light that comes into the world through this ultimate illumination of God that we would see everything that is declared about Him. The true light is available for all who would believe. The gospel is remarkably simple. You don't have to be smart enough to understand what's happening behind the scenes. You don't have to be able to comprehend and to wrestle with theological issues that for centuries have divided the church. You know what you need to do? Believe that God loves you. That He sent His Son to die for you. And make Him Lord of your life. Let Him reign over every part of you. Let Him be King of everything that you are. Look for vitality among you. In Him was the life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He was a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. How easy is it for us to not know Jesus? The greatest tragedy of all in all of creation is that God would come to dwell among his own creation that he would declare his glories in all of creation and that humanity would choose darkness. The greatest tragedy story ever told is that people today continue to choose darkness. They would rather be ignorant than pursue God's heart They would rather love God in a way that doesn't call for sacrifice among them. Walking in the light reveals to us the ways that we have lived our lives in ways that that do not glorify God, that dishonor Him. It's a scary feat. It's challenging and it's humbling to admit to God on a regular basis that I fail. That I don't serve you. But let me ask you a question. And we'll close with this. Would you rather face the judgment... the judgment of Christ having deceived yourself in a lifetime into thinking that you loved God 
that you had made him Lord and finding out on judgment day that that was a false profession? Or would you rather sacrifice everything on earth, all the comforts that we've come to love, to look forward every moment of every day to the time when we would be with Christ to face his judgment? The judgment is not coming on an issue of works. The judgment of God is not coming on the issue of works because the sacrifice has been made through the life-giving life of Jesus Christ, through through the light that he has provided to this world. No one who is spared the judgment of God will be spared on the basis of anything that they do, on the traditions that they preserve, on the faithfulness of the church. They will be saved by the grace and the mercy of a propitiatory advocate who dwells at the right hand of God. Father, we love you. God, we ask that this Christmas season, as we remember the reason for the season, as we remember what it means to worship you, God, that you would breathe vitality into our life as we pursue you who gives us the breath of life. God, I pray that you'd be with us as we were created and help us to see ourselves in a clear light. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand with us as we prepare to sing?